I think perhaps the most important factor is recognizing that you can't avoid risk. Right? You can you can take risks um, or you can not take risks, in which case you're taking the risk of obsolescence, stagnation, loneliness, you know, <laughs> adventure-free life. Right? So it's really a matter of choosing which risk you want to take. Do you want to take the one where you, you know, stretch and try something that might not work out well, might end in failure, or do you want to take the risk of doing nothing and letting the world sort of pass you by? Hey there, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the show. You know, we used to think about failure as the opposite of success, right? And yet today we are torn between two failure cultures, one that says to avoid failure at all costs, and the other that says, fail fast, fail often. You know, these are just experiments. How can we get through them as quick as possible? But the trouble with those two extremes is that both of those approaches lack a bunch of subtlety. They, they lack distinctions that help us separate good from bad. And that understanding the right kind of failure and the wrong kind of failure is the topic of today's episode, where my guest is Amy Edmondson. She is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School, renowned for research on psychological safety for over 20 years. She's got all kinds of award-winning uh, work. She's appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journals, Financial Times. She's got a huge TED Talk, uh, How to Turn a Group of Strangers into a Team. And this particular episode today, we talk about the concept of the right kind of wrong. The Science of Failing Well. That is the title and subtitle of her new book. Cannot wait for you to enjoy today's episode, Revolutionizing How We Ought to Think About Failing Well. I'm going to get out of your way and let you enjoy the show. Dr. Amy, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I always uh, articulate in an intro, essentially your CV, your bio, a lot of the bullet points, but I'd love to hear you, in your own words, what, uh, what kind of work are you focused on? Why should we care? And uh, what gets you up in the morning? <laughs> well, I guess I'm, I've been focused for a long time on people at work and how and why, especially people working together. So I, re I look at teams and groups how the interpersonal dynamics between us contribute to our ability to get the outcomes that we are trying to get, right? And so I know that's very abstract, but what that means is I study teams in the workplace and, and not just teams, meaning really stable, intact teams, but dynamic teaming. Um, the, mm. the fact, the need of our collaboration with different people at different time which gives rise to all sorts of crazy configurations that are hard to manage, hard to experience, but can be really fun and challenging as well. I will confess that I came across your work specifically around the topic of failure. And as we spoke prior to hitting the record button, uh, the community that is listening to this show or watching the show right now largely identifies creators as entrepreneurs as creative curious. And so it would not be a stretch to say that this community is constantly brushing up against failure, their awarenesses of failure. And it's what I immediately gravitated to in your work is specifically your new book called Right Kind of Wrong, which is incredible. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But your work in general is yeah. the, you know, the, the multiple archetypes of failure and how Failure doesn't accurately describe just that one word. We have so many associations and, and yet failure can be, and in fact, according to your research, is incredibly valuable. And we need to put that on a spectrum and start to think about it differently than we have been programmed to think about it. So maybe you could orient us, the, the creative and entrepreneurial listeners who are afraid or aware of failure and that that is something that they brush up against every day and that we've been programmed to think this is bad. And I know you've yeah. got a 
really strong counterpoint to that. So let's go there to begin. Absolutely. So you're, you are right. I have been thinking about failure for a long time, maybe because I experienced many of them, you know, like all of us as a, as a fallible human being, I experienced failures. So I've been thinking about this topic and writing about this topic and studying this topic for a long time. And, you know, it's only this year that I decided it was a that it wasn't done yet, right? That my work wasn't done, that, that that sort of clarity in our society wasn't achieved yet about the idea of failure and, you know, why it's good or when it's good and when it's not so good. So, and you're right, the, the word failure is being asked to take on so much territory. So mm-hmm. I've identified in my work three archetypes, three archetypes of failure, which I call basic failure, complex failure, and intelligent failures. And only the intelligent failures are what we would, you know, rightly consider good, you know, celebratory um, opportunities for discovery. The other two are largely preventable. And when possible, we should do our best to prevent them. So the, the um, you know, the distinction, the primary distinction is that Basic failures and complex failures take place in old territory or familiar territory where there is a recipe, let's say, for the result you're trying to achieve. Whereas intelligent failures are new territory, at least at least new to you. They may be new, it might be new to the world, but it's at the very least new to you, where in a sense you have no choice but to try something. You have no choice but to experiment. And your experiments might sometimes do result in success, but they also might and often do result in failure. And those are the kinds of failures we have to get excited about, right? We have to get really head and heart, embrace them. We've got to say, yep, these are the secret sauce to advancements and successes in any field you can think of. Okay. So as we continue to excavate a little bit about that, the way that I think the way that I have learned to think about failure, and I, I think the way I have been working for 20 years in my creative career <laughs> to start to think about to a failure is that, you know, I think that there's an adage out there, they're just stepping stones to success. So do you see that as part, you know, is this show up really clearly in your research, that experimentation and failure? And I guess, how does this show up in your research in, you know, in no uncertain terms? It, I, I don't know how we get good at something without failing a lot. So is it, right? should we be, be thinking about renaming <laughs> these little yeah. experiments instead of failures? Should yeah. we try and spread the gospel of your work about no failures. I mean, it's again, without sort of this trite, like failure is a stepping stone to success right. because when you're in the middle of a failure, it feels terrible. So how, how, I mean, yeah. so help us tell well, me about the research and, and help me get out of this. Sure. Well, you're absolutely right. And by the way, the research, I mean, much of which, most of which is not mine really shows quite uh, definitively that we don't like failure, right? And we don't like to learn from it. And, you know, we, we can talk a happy talk, but in, you know, in, in real life, we just find it aversive and painful and we'd rather not have it. So uh, let's go, if I go to the three types, right? That you're right, better words would be better. It's a, one of the, the type that we're talking about right now that we really have to learn to fall in love with. Um, could be well described as discoveries, right? They're not failures, they're discoveries. Thomas Edison famously said, I haven't failed. I found 10,000 ways that don't work, right? Which is, you know, quite a cheerful statement and scientifically accurate. Um, And I think the mindset or attitude you need to have if you want to be an inventor. Now, not all of us have to be want to be inventors, but you know, probably most of our listeners do want to be creative and they're they're entrepreneurial and they're, you know, they're often doing things that haven't been done before. And in that domain, you've got to be willing to experience, let's call them discoveries, right? And then that's a happier word than, than, than <laughs> failure. But it's still, you still have the obligation to learn as much as you can from your discoveries. And, yeah. and you know, and to, to not to just sort of, um, okay, that didn't work. Let me try something else. But to stop and say, okay, 
why didn't it work? What happened? What did I learn from that? And what does that learning suggest about the next trial? What, what should I do mm. next? Right. And that's, you know, the so, so important. Possibly the other two categories, the best words would be one would just be mistakes. Now we know human beings will make mistakes and sometimes they result in, you know, either small or sometimes even very large failures. Um, but they're mistakes. We, we do our best to avoid them, but the, some of them will sneak through. And then the third kind, you know, so discoveries, mistakes, and the other kind is accidents. Right? Accidents are those unfortunate outcomes that occur due to a confluence of, of factors that just came together in the wrong way. Yeah. Well, as we focus on our audience and think about the just any creative process. I'm writing another book at the moment. I probably was 50,000 words into a previous iteration of it and figured out that this was not the thing. This was not going to get me to where I want to go. It was not going to be, you know, ultimately going to, I wasn't going to land the plane, land the message that I wanted to get. And discovery. Yeah. So I discovered that the 50,000 words and I had 50 or whatever thousand yeah. words that I had written were not going to get me where I wanted to go. Right. And, and I was aware from previous work like this, creative work, where you're iterating and discovering, to use your term, that while it's, this wasn't going to get me where I needed to go, that I was phrased, no effort is ever wasted. And is that specifically just a psychological state? Am I tricking myself by saying that? Or is it is it real? Does the research show that it's it, it's almost like the Edison thing? I discovered a bunch of ways that didn't work, and that is now narrowing the field. Like, how ought we think about these this tremendous amount of effort sometimes that goes into uh, trying to you know pass your medical boards and you don't pass? What do we take from that? Trying to build a, a rocket ship if you're SpaceX, and how many of them? you know, blew up on either takeoff or landing. And, you know, how ought we, what's the mindset that we need to carry into this such that we can keep going? Because that is, I would say, if, if I'm orienting around our listeners, like that's a punchline. That's what they need to hear from you. I think what you're doing is in, in that story is reframing and, you know, you're reframing something that you would instinctively want to call waste, wasted time, wasted effort into something that was actually productive in getting you to the insight you had that allowed you to then pivot to the book you wanted to write or really should be yeah. writing. So I, I'm, I'm a little wary of saying no effort um, is ever wasted because I'm, I'm imagining the possibility of a kind of stubborn adherence to some path for too long that might qualify. But but by and large, it's the right message. Um, it, and, and maybe a better way to put it is that you had to go through that to get to where you're trying to go, right? That you just, it's part of, you know, it's just part of the program. It's part of the journey. And it's, so in that sense, it's not waste. It's research, right? It's, it's, um, it's, it's valuable learning. And our primary privilege as human beings is the opportunity to learn. And, and so anytime you're taking advantage of that opportunity, you're on the right track, I would say, but the track isn't straight. It's just, it's windy for sure by its very nature. Well, this leads me to almost like a first principle based question is it seems like you're then saying that these are that you can develop a practice through through skill acquisition of getting of maintaining a certain mindset of uh learning and adapting mm -hmm. and and so how, how do we <laughs> look backwards from where we're sitting right now at yesterday or last week or our previous job or whatever? How can we take some of that data 
and what are the skills that we need to practice and how do we actually practice this? Because it sounds scary and abstract to just say, yeah. cool, this is part of the process. Yep. And it's just sort of like you're and pushing you the little baby bird off the branch and hoping <laughs> that she can fly. So <laughs> I, I, help us like orient us around the mindset and the skills that you can build in order to become more resilient. So I, I think a good place to start is Carol Dweck's idea of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And then I'm going to add to it. But the growth mindset is one that um, is based in the premise that I can grow. I can keep learning. The fixed mindset is based on the premise that when things go wrong, it's just evidence of my inadequacy, right? And, mm -hmm. and most of us, most of the time, have a fixed mindset. We've been we've been somewhat socialized in school and elsewhere to to equate our accomplishments with our you know natural ability, um, rather than thinking of our accomplishments as sort of a reflection of our effort that the effort we we put into it, the strategies that we put into it, and so you know it really sort of pausing to say I am likely naturally in a fixed mindset, but I can shift that to a growth mindset where, where I realize, you know, so another sort of casual saying, I, I can't fail. I can only learn and grow, but it's true, right? I, I, in fact, am capable of learning and growing. Just remind yourself of that. And then let's do some of the things you have to do to manifest that. The other sort of mindset shift that I think is learnable and so important is to shift from our spontaneous focus on the past, you know, what just happened, why I feel bad about it, what, to a kind of more cultivated focus on the future. Our, our most important question is always what next? How do I shape it? What can I do to shape the future outcomes to be more you know, more to my liking than, than the one I just experienced? This is practice. It's almost like a a sport that you might pick up. It's 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 a muscle to just keep a self discipline, to keep reorienting yourself to the I can learn and grow and what next. That gives me hope because I have developed that muscle reasonably through a long career as a as a creator and as an entrepreneur. And yet, it's not I easy. Tend... Yeah, <laughs> I know. I get it. it. It's not Personal easy. Confession here. Yeah, it's not right. easy. No, I'm and the worst. What? That's why I study this, right? I, I, <laughs> I so want to get everything right every time. And by the way, talk about writing a book. I, I, I wish there was a way to track this, or maybe I don't. But I'm <laughs> absolutely convinced that I deleted more sentences, paragraphs, you know, whole sections than are left. And the book's, you know, long enough. But I, there's. You know, the, no sentence that remains in that book didn't get tweaked and crafted and fixed and sometimes just tossed out altogether. It's definitely part of any creative process. You know, when I was when I was writing the book, I I um I was sort of joking with myself and I I was was talking about elite failure practitioners, you know, it's like a joke, right? That you would never right. include in the book. But you know, the 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 people who really do this for a living. And I think many <laughs> of your listeners belong in that category. And and then I started to realize, no, maybe it's not a joke. Like maybe it's a pretty good term to convey um the fact that there are people who um I'm not saying they're happy when they fail but they get it, right? They get that this is necessary. You know, yep. the Thomas Edison story would, would be an example, you know, not just 10,000 ways that don't work, but all, you know, really good scientists, elite athletes, you know, innovators, inventors, um, they fail more often than the rest of us. They have to, because in order to be at the leading edge of any endeavor, you're but almost definitionally going to engage, have failures. And so what I started to think is like, what can we learn from them? Like, what? how are they different than the rest of us? And they are not, it, it would be an error to say they like failure. They don't, right? But they are different in that I think they manage their fear. They manage their fear of taking risks and they take them anyway. They um, sort of manage or reframe the disappointment to discovery and and they use it uh, you know to, to push forward 
Um, and, and I believe they intuitively appreciate the difference between intelligent failures and the preventable, the preventable kind. Well, let's scratch at that a little bit. Go deeper on those two things. There's the, again, the intelligent and the other, the basic or, and or complex. Articulate a little bit with a little bit more depth and maybe sure. some examples. Yeah. How, how we ought to think about those different uh, categories of failure. So let's, I mean, intelligent failures are right kind of wrong. They're the, you know, they're, they're the one I think we really need to appreciate. So I'll, I'll, I'll describe four criteria and then I'll give a couple of examples that are really different. And maybe you, maybe you'll come up with some examples too, you know, from your life or from the news, but they take place in new territory. They happen while you're in pursuit of a goal, right? It's not just sort of playing around. I mean, that's fine. I don't, not anti-playing around, but they're in pursuit of a goal. They're driven by a hypothesis, which just means you've got a valid reason to believe this might work, right? It's worth sure. it's worth the effort. It's worth the, the attempt. Um, and importantly, they are as small as possible, right? They're just big enough to learn from and preferably no bigger. You don't invest all your savings in an unproven investment, for example. Um, and 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 so you know what what are examples like in in um, businesses entrepreneurs are frequently you know trying to come up with I mean they've got an idea that for a business that either doesn't exist in its in its current form or doesn't exist in a particular part of the market and so it's new territory they want to start a successful business you know they've got a solid reason a business plan it's called to believe this could work. Um, and, you know, they're getting funding, they're investing some of their own time and effort, but, but no more than necessary. And it may succeed, but as we all know, it also may fail. So that would be an intelligent failure. And similarly, um, let's say you're looking for a, you know, a life partner and, um, you know, a friend tells you that they have someone they'd like you to meet and they have good reason that you should, you might like this person. And so, you know, you're in pursuit of a goal. You want to meet someone. There's no way to find out other than doing it, whether or not you'll get along. Um, and, you know, you've got good reason driven by hypothesis to believe this might work. And do you agree to go off with them for a month? Of course not. You know, you, you go out on a date, right? Small as possible. And let's say it doesn't work, right? You don't, you don't like each other. Then it's a failure, but is it a waste of time? No, it's research, right? So it's very different, you know, start a new business, go out on a blind date, couldn't be more different phenomena, right? But they're both intelligent failures. Got it. So I'm on board <laughs> and I've, I feel like I have, again, as a lifelong professional creator, and there are a lot of people who listen to say, went to art school where you're exposed to the crit portion of school, which is where you know, you put your work up on the wall and people talk about it. Yeah. And they try and talk about the work instead of the person. Right. That's one way that, you know, it's, um, but these are, you know, valuable, sometimes very public ways of making discoveries, for example. Yeah. And so <laughs> with that comes what I've become aware of is there's an emotional toll. And there's an interesting line in the book, which talks about how it's impossible to calculate, you know, time and resources, um, the, the passing of those time, that time and the, and the, um, sinking of the resources that are cr created by our failure to learn from failure. You said, <laughs> yeah, but the, 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 the punchline for me and where I'd like to focus next is the next sentence. It says, it's just as hard to measure the emotional toll. And to me, this is the part where I feel like conceptually I get, yeah, I need to make these, you know, perform a bunch of tiny yeah. experiments, the smaller experiment, the better, just like you said, so I can learn and grow and apply mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. adapt mm -hmm. and, and iterate as they say in, in the technology space. And yet we have to get good at yeah. managing the emotional part. Because attaching ourselves, our own worth, our identity, this can be, this is a very familiar to many trapping of the idea mm -hmm. of running mistakes and go back to your family of origin. Maybe you had to do everything perfect as a kid. You had some, you know, <clears throat> um, 
anal retentive parents and there was no room for mistakes or there's all kinds of baggage. So how do we get good? I understand how we can <laughs> think about it. I, I mean, and I, I don't expect you to turn into a yeah. professor of psych, you know, of, of clinical psychology, right, here, right. but that's what I have but, to do for a moment here. At least <laughs> I have to try yes, anyway. You have, well, yeah. this is what I'm asking. But I can it's, learn from the greats. I don't have to be that myself. Good. Um, there you and go. I did. So, but I, I'm smiling because you, um, you're asking such a good question. And I had written, you know, an article about strategies for learning from failure in Harvard Business Review years ago. And I'd kind of thought I'd said everything I needed to say on the subject in 4,000 words, right? So why should I write a book? And in a way, the answer to that question is exactly this, right? That I, I the book describes the three kinds of failure in more detail, many, I think, compelling stories. They're fun uh, to read. It's always fun to read about other people's failures. Uh, but. <laughs> But um, the part that was new and the part that I really had to dig into and learn more about um, was what it requires from us. Like what, what are the kind of competencies that we fallible human beings need to, and I think can develop to do this well. And Mm -hmm. the first and most important is what we're talking about now, which is the kind of self-discipline, the self-talk. And it's, you know, can we learn better self-talk? Our, our, our spontaneous self-talk is often unhelpful. And it, from in my mind, um, the most sort of practical answer to that question comes from the cognitive behavior therapy tradition, right? the, which is the, the tradition that says um, things happen there are events in our life and we have spontaneous sense-making about them that is often not in our best interest, right? It makes us sadder or causes us more pain than we would need to experience, you know, for our own health and productive next steps. And their premise is that we can learn um, more productive thinking or more more healthy thinking. And one of my favorite um, practitioners in, in this domain was a, a man named Maxie Maltzby, a, a physician psychiatrist who passed away recently in his early 90s. Um, and um, he he was an extraordinary, um, extraordinarily rational man, an African-American um, who you know, got to go to medical school on the GI Bill and just made some really um, sort of, I think, important um, contributions to how to break these skills down into sort of simple, uh, actionable practices for, for ordinary people, right? And and, um, and and Maxie called our sort of spontaneous thinking uh, more often than not, it's it's irrational, but believable, right? So let me give you an example. And it's an example from Maxi, where he's got a um, a young, you know, high school um, student who's a very successful, um, pretty good student, pretty good athlete. You know, he's had a lot of success in his young 17 years. And it's, it's in, his name is Jeffrey, and, and he's lives in Minnesota. And it's, you know, not a lot going on in winter and his friends talk him into learning to play the card game bridge, which is a challenging game to learn. It's like very intricate. And and so guess what? Right off the bat, Jeffrey is not very good at it and he's frustrated and he makes lots of mistakes and he fails often in, in the game and he decides he doesn't like the game and it's a bad game. And um, but then he happens to take this, this course sort of coincidentally um, offered in his school about this stuff. And he realizes that his belief that he should be good at this, you know, and it should be easy to be good at this is it was and that that his mistakes show that he's just incompetent or it's a bad game were what Maxie would call irra- irrational thoughts, because honestly, anything hard, you should not be good at it right off the bat. And it would be irrational to think you should. Um, yet believable. And it's their believability that keeps us stuck. You know, we, we sort of believe, yes, this is evidence that I'm not smart enough or that this is a bad game or whatever your own self-talk is. 
but you can learn and jeffrey started practicing it and he did learn to challenge the irrational but believable thinking and replace it with rational and more productive thinking like okay i'm not good at this because i'm a novice i just started um yeah it's kind of an interesting game my friends seem to like it it could be fun to get better at it you know to achieve some semblance of mastery over it so that i could have as much fun as they're having you know with it right that that's a kind of rational and also believable but but healthier path to go on so the the the, the sort of the quick and dirty practice that that i took away from from maxi was stop challenge choose stop is just to master the pause right can you take at least help yourself take a breath to take a look at that thinking you know just like okay here i'm doing again i'm spiraling into the doom loop or whatever um so stop breathe and then take a look at that thinking and challenge it okay that might be true but it might not be true like what am i missing or what's well you know i might be missing the fact that i'm a novice at this card game um and then choose so it's stop challenge choose choose a kind of healthier sense making or healthier self-talk if i put in more time i will get better at it that's probably true i can still decide i don't want to do that but at least i'm deciding it from a more rational place and do you think that this is best in the moment to craft this sort of thinking and is this really the uh, it's almost like an awareness practice when yes. you're like hey cool okay stop take a beat yeah, you know, I'm going to challenge my previous assumptions about how I should be at this game, and more practice is going to get me further. And let's just keep playing for fun and try and learn some more. Is that are you yeah. asking us to yeah. do that in the moment, I mean, or is this more of a reflective? I think both. And but yes, if you can master, I mean, if you can practice and get better at the catching yourself in the moment, you'll experience less pain. Right? You'll experience less you know, unnecessary pain about your own shortcomings, which we all have, right? So it's super good to catch yourself in the moment, right? So I do believe, and you're, you use the exact right word in my view, which is awareness, right? Developing more self-awareness and more moment-to-moment -moment awareness is healthy, is good, right? And I'm a huge fan of reflection, right? Like take the time, sure. take the time to sort of think back, okay, we're, we're, what did I do well there? What could I have done better? Right, that that's another practice to build in. So they're not mutually exclusive. I think you can do both, and you won't, um, you know, you won't get it right all the time. You won't catch and correct yourself all the time, but it's um, it is doable. And and you know, so that was a game of bridge. But what about a time when you know someone says something in a meeting that you instantly interpret as an insult to you, or as 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 or as a a threat to you in some way another moment where that's another opportunity where you pause breathe and think wait a minute my interpretation I, I took that to mean xyz is there another possible interpretation of that remark and the answer is almost surely yes especially if you're somewhat yeah. creative you can come up yeah. with something else and and usually um that something else is more benign than your first instinct you know and then i just i choose i could go check but i also could just choose to think you weren't actually out to get me you were thinking of something else or frustrated about something it was about you well, about me yeah yeah uh, the stoic philosophy comes to mind which is really around it's not what happens it's how i react to what happens exactly and creating that little window for the, the space between uh, impetus and response, right? Where something comes in and, and then you have an immediate response. That is a practice and it's the process of, of, okay, that person said something. Let's pause, like keep our heart rate at 62 instead of letting it go to 90. Let's reflect. My assumption was this and it, there yeah. are lots of other assumptions that could be made i'm going to take one of the ones that's not harmful to me and i'm going to play that now in a sense are we is this tricking ourselves or is this just a better way to be in the world i think we were tricking ourselves the first time got it. right we were you know our 
because we trick ourselves into thinking our spontaneous thoughts in reaction to some event, which in fact, the thoughts are the ones that are driving then are how we feel. Um, we trick ourselves into thinking that those are reality itself, you know, rather than out, you know, the, what I made up about this situation. So, and we are so good at tricking ourselves that we fail to challenge that mm -hmm. what I made up. Right. So we trick ourselves day in and day out. The, the, um, the practice I think that you and I are talking about is one of learning how to catch and correct our trickery to be healthier and more based in reality. Great. This makes me want to take our conversation to another esoteric and personal example that I have become aware of in, in COVID. I started playing golf and <laughs> it was the only thing you could do, especially up here in the Northwest. There's everything was locked down very tightly. And, um, I had played as a young person, didn't play for 25 years and then started playing again. And what, why I'm intrigued by this is there is a belief that if you, you know, golf is not dissimilar to bridge, a very difficult game. So difficult, in fact, that there is this, um, there's a the paradigm out there called effortless brilliance, right? We all want to be brilliant at something and not show how much time and energy we've sunk into it or how much we care about it or how much, you know, um, emotionally we are wrapped up in this. And so then I start to think, well, where do we get these ideals? And in watching professional golf on television, one might think that the best people in the world are just absolutely near perfect because the highlights that we see are only the ones where they either hit really horrible shots, in which case it's news that, you know, this particular person had a bad shot and it's like, the one in a million, we caught them having a bad day. But the reality is, I'll just use this as an example for the people who golf great, for the people who don't, you'll get it anyway, <laughs> that fr from 100 yards away, the very best person to ever play the game, Tiger Woods, still misses the green 20% of the time, one in five times. And I share that statistic with other golfers and who I observe have unrealistic expectations and they do not believe it. So uh. fortunately we have these phones in our pocket. Now they take out the phone, they look <laughs> this up and they find out that this is an actual stat. So the question is, there's an awareness that we have about our own self-talk about what we think we should have versus, you know, versus the result that we should get. We, we should challenge the, the, um, the first, oh, you're bad or you're a bad golfer. You should challenge this assumption. And yet we, there's so many inputs see for example social media today it tells us how to live this perfect life or in this case of the example that i'm using professional golf on television they edit thousands of shots to only show you the best ones therefore you develop a belief that is difficult to challenge because you do not have many other examples this is my point we only have right. examples of of success right therefore our ability to understand the reality of the people who are the best in the world, how many times they've failed is fleeting at best. And we never come across it at worst. So how, this is a long question, I get it, but how do we, in the face of all of this programming, <laughs> get strong enough to be comfortable in that moment and saying, this is just part of the process. I'm going to go back after another opportunity. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, stand back up again and, and give it a whirl. I just want to start by saying how much I love this example and this metaphor. And and by the way, I did the same thing and I'm terrible. And so I have to do the, you know, Maxi Maltzby thing all the time that, no, I'm supposed to be terrible, right? It's a really right. hard game and I'm new and it's, I'm old, right? So it's like crazy, but, but um, there is something fun about just practicing failing well myself, right? To go out and do something that I'm just guaranteed to fail at pretty much almost every stroke. Um, but, but you're right. And, and this, this notion, you know, this myth of effortless brilliance, I would say just to add to the golf example, not only are they curating what we see on television, but you also, I mean, this isn't someone going out 
you know, every weekend or or a few weekends during the summer, but not the rest of the, you know, this is someone who actually does this virtually all day long every day, right? So, and, yeah. and that, is, they still are going to miss the green 20% of the time from a hundred yards. So it's, you know, it's, that's the other part. We, we aren't being exposed to all of the practices. So we're comparing ourselves to best in world rather than to, you know, where we should be given where we are and what we've put into it. So, yes. And, and then social media, you know, has now been demonstrated. I think we all intuitively appreciate this with its curated images of perf- perfect and happy times, et cetera, has in fact harmed our mental health, right? It is, yes. it is, um, it fact. is not good for us as human yes. beings to be exposed to these woefully biased samples of success. You know, we are um, we are better off when we see a more realistic, healthy mix. Um, just so with that in mind, you say, now, how do we deal with it? Well, you know, that's why I, I again, playfully, but I think also realistically called the final chapter, how to thrive as a fallible, fallible human being. And there isn't one thing. I mean, it's a it's a mix of some of the things we're talking about now of sort of um, mindfulness, self-awareness practices, challenging those tricky and wrong assumptions that we're making about others and our inadequacy. And, you know, just keep it up, keep it up as a kind of a habit um, that allows you to, to keep seeing reality. You know, I, I think it's, it's challenging that, sense that I see reality that I know and just and and committing yourself to keep learning, committing yourself to being curious because curiosity is kind of a more pleasurable state, I think, right? I mean, <laughs> we don't like to be wrong, we don't like to fail, but if you can really sort of remind yourself how to be curious, sort of fun again, right? Oh, I wonder, you know, I, I wonder what he's doing or thinking. I wonder why that might be so. I wonder if it's true that Tiger Woods misses the the green 20% of the time, right? It's 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 fun to wonder and it's fun to then go try to find out uh the information yeah. as well. So I think it is it is um first recognizing the thing you're asking me to solve, how hard it is. Like we are swimming upstream right but what are your choices you know stop swimming um just float go back downstream worse and worse into the doom gloom spiral no right so i think you just keep practicing you develop your um self-awareness practices you um learn to be thoughtful about the kinds of contexts where you know, failures are more likely, the golf course being one of them, um, you know, entrepreneurship being another, um, scientific laboratories being a third, right? So be more thoughtful about um, what's real, choosing learning, being more thoughtful about wh- where you need to be absolutely vigilant and should expect almost 100% getting it right and and where you should feel find being playful and and experimenting and knowing for sure that things will go wrong. Let's admit that's very, very helpful, by the way. Thank you. So let's admit we've made a mistake and let's say we've made a mistake in a personal context and personal relationship. We are the person in the meeting that said something that was, you know, too sharp for our colleagues and, you know, maybe too on the nose, maybe even Mm, inaccurate, mm, but, mm. but blameful. And, I was fascinated on <clears throat> around the the parts of the book that had to do with apologizing and acknowledgement essentially of failures or making mistakes. And I'm wondering if you can you know help us yeah. think a little bit more clearly about that. And there's, you know, I, I recall a chapter that was largely around the like the public ones, the big CEOs when they oh, yeah. they had a breach or they but let's take this down to a personal level yeah. because I think if we can especially in interpersonal relationship, interpersonal relationships. It's one thing to miss hitting a green from a hundred yards, but it's another thing to, you know, yeah. misunderstand someone and, you know, railroad them into a certain, you know, 
way of feeling based on what you did or didn't do right. So I'm wondering how, how help us with the, the concept of the apology when things have gone wrong. Yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting and important topic because, you know, there's, you know, if I, um, you know, accidentally dropped your favorite coffee cup and it broke, you know, I, I, I will instantly apologize. I won't have any problem apologizing and I feel terrible about it. And it was just a slip, right? It, and you get that. It's, it's obvious what that is. And so we don't struggle with those. And I, and I apologize instantly because I care about you and I do feel bad, right? So it's like easy. But now when you get into the terrain you just described, which is where I've done something you know, that actually I don't really like to think of myself as the kind of person who would be unnecessarily mean or or selfish or, you know, when, when it gets into the domain of character um, and, and, and coming up short, character flaws, those are harder because we don't, we have to own a good apology requires us to take responsibility for our um our, our shortcoming for our for our error and when it's an error that sort of falls in that domain of character it's doubly hard to do because we just we want to think of ourselves as good people and by the way we we most of us are good people who will make mistakes so yeah. we've got to get okay with with um with doing this too but the the you know a good apology um, does several things, but it's primarily focused on repairing the relationship. In that moment, you decide you care more about the relationship than about your own ego, because your ego doesn't want to give in. Your ego doesn't want to acknowledge that you came up short. You know, it's all, but you've started it or whatever, right? There's all this stuff going on in my head that doesn't want it to be my fault because it's so painful when something is my right. fault. And so right. you, you're thinking about the relationship. You're focused on the other you take responsibility. Doesn't mean you're taking responsibility for being a bad person, but you're taking responsibility for the action. You know, I am so sorry I said that. It, you know, it it was it wasn't it was wrong of me. And you, when relevant, say, you know, what can I do to make it up to you? Right. So there's sort of a um, an owning of what happened and owning your own causal contribution to it, and then trying to make amends. You know, and sometimes this can be smaller. Sometimes this can be larger. Yeah, I find um, I just found the section of the book. It's it's um, un, under getting it right, uh, pitch two eighty one, and the the <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, now the the fact that we are so good at saying, "I'm sorry that you misunderstood," right, me. right. <laughs> Which is not right. a, like that's not an apology, right? Right. Like, I'm sorry that you made a mistake and not understanding how I how yeah. I said that. I'm so sorry that you came up short, right? <laughs> that, yes. That you misin <laughs> misinterpreted my perfect actions. No, right. right. That won't do it. I mean, that might leave me in the moment feeling good about myself, but it sure doesn't help the relationship, and it does not help me in the future with the you know, the, the, the friends and colleagues I care about, um, caring about me too. Excellent. Now I want to shift gears a little bit and I'm happy to use a personal example here just so that, uh, I'm not putting you on the spot to come up with some great example, but I want to talk about sharing about failing. And if you reflect on the earlier, I'm just, I've got a couple of notes here reflecting on this earlier sort of excavation I wanted to do around, um, I guess just, you know, failing publicly the, the, um, uh, hmm. the ego, that role that that plays, um, how can we, when we see perfection everywhere around us, manufactured, edited, <laughs> curated versions of real life, it sort of has the opposite effect. And yet, if we you know point at research from my dear friend Brene Brown, it talks about vulnerability, authenticity. We believe that sharing about our failures makes us look weak or like bad people or bad friends. And what we know is that it has the opposite effect, right? It can help us, you know, bond and connect, and it demonstrates bravery and courage and humanity right. and all these things. Yet, I don't know anyone who's really excited to share their biggest failures or even 
small to medium sized failures. Maybe like, oh, my bad. I forgot to take out the trash. Next time I'll do a better <laughs> job. What can I do? I'm talking about large professional failures. And I've, I have just a brief example of my, myself. I created more than a decade ago. I created the first photo app that was, um, that had <clears throat> photos at the center of a social network. It was the app of the year on the Apple platform, millions of users. Well, it was long before Instagram or any of this other stuff. And through a series of very weird and technical details around my relationship with the developer, I basically stalled out and continuing to deliver um, updated versions of this application to the users. Instagram saw that I was floundering. They, you know, got $50 million of investment and came <clears throat> after me and dunked, dunked on me. And now we use Instagram and not best camera. So I have written about this failure very publicly huh. because I learned about it. And this is not an effort to make me look good. It's just the opposite. It took me years. And I literally mean years to be able to have reflected on this looked at it for what it was, articulated my failings in a sort of public forum and and believing finally that that would have value to both myself and to others. Right. Why was this one yeah. of the hardest things that I could could do and how if you're speaking to our listeners, how could you encourage sharing about our failures rather than hiding them? You know, it's it's um, it's hard. And why is it hard? Because I think one of the most primal or and well-programmed instincts we have is that desire to look good in the eyes of others. And that is incompatible with failing, of course. Um, and, and yet, as you point out, and as Brene Brown points out, um, we kind of like people better when they're vulnerable, right? When they're real. And, and so maybe so i don't you know i don't think i have the sort of magic wand for this but i think maybe um when you've stopped to reflect on it's 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 about getting the circle right at first you're talking about sort of a very public admission but i think most of the time when we make a new friend and i don't mean just a casual acquaintance who also likes golf right but a, sure. but a real friend when you, you when you when you actually make a new friend a kind of intimate um, friend where you sort of are real with each other. Um, that process, I would argue, nearly always involves talking, admitting your vulnerabilities, you know, pointing to some of the things you, you, because, you know, telling about some things where you really screwed up or you didn't do well, or telling about your fears or your anxieties. And what happens is that other person still seems to accept you and want to be with you. And it's like the most, you know, rewarding thing you can have is that I could just be myself for a minute and, or an hour or, you know, always. And that person still somehow inexplicably wants to be my friend, you know, or wants to marry me or what have you. Right. So, I mean, intimacy and that, that true connection with another person has always involved our sharing our vulnerabilities and our failures. So the question then becomes, how much do we want to broaden that circle? And I don't think the right answer is necessarily always the to the whole world. No, right? Yeah. I mean, there are things that should be kept private and, and inside and other things that we talk about because we recognize that they will have value for others. They'll value us for having shared them. They'll help others make some of this, I mean, prevent others from making some of the same mistakes that we've made and so on right so if you take take dweck's growth mindset and you realize that in growing growing requires risk mm. right and is what we are doing moderating risk or is it risking while understanding the real it's sort of like the data on the outcome or something like how I'm trying to get like, how, what's a formula or mm. conceptually just a way of thinking where we can really start to embrace risk, risk then being a yeah. proxy for, for growth. Like what is, if you right. were to say, what is the most important factor 
in being willing to take ah. smart and calculated risks? Well, I think I think perhaps the most important factor is recognizing that you can't avoid risk. Right? You can you can take risks. Um, or you cannot take risks, in which case you're taking the risk of obsolescence, stagnation, loneliness, you know, <laughs> adventure-free life. Right. So it's really a matter of choosing which risk you want to take. Do you want to take the one where you, you know, stretch and try something that might not work out well, might end in failure, or do you want to take the risk of doing nothing and letting the world sort of pass you by? So it's reframing and rearticulating that. You can't avoid the risk altogether. You just, you can only choose which kind of risk you want to take. And then also take smart risks, right? When you're taking proactive risks, don't take stupid ones, right? You don't, you know, jump out of an airplane without a parachute, metaphorically speaking, or literally mm -hmm. speaking, right? You, you, <laughs> you, you know, you take ones that you, that have a reasonable chance of succeeding, if not right away, but soon enough. Mm. It reminds me of this Jim Rohn quote that I just happen to have nearby, which is it's all risky. The <laughs> minute you were born, it got risky. Yes. If you think you're trying, you think trying is risky. Wait till they hand you the bill for not trying. Yes. If you, ah. if you think investing is risky, wait till you see the tab for not investing. It's all risky. It's all risky. Exactly. So it's just reminding yourself of the invisible other side, you know, the dog that didn't bark. <laughs> well, thank you very much for creating this work. And I just want to be very clear for folks out there who are watching and listening that the book is Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. To that, this is my last question. How do you, like, you talk about it as a science. Mm. It's not alchemy. It's not art. I might think it's some combination there, but in the subtitle, you call it a science. Why did you choose the word science and how ought we think well, scientifically about failing well? I think to, to be perfectly honest with you, um, I am a social scientist, right? I'm an academic, so I figured it had to be in there somewhere, right? I had to <laughs> remind my readers that, yeah, I come from um, a, a legitimate place to tell you something about this topic. So that's part of it. And then the second part is I do use, and the book is not a science book, but it is a, it is deeply informed by the science, mm -hmm. not just my research, not even close, but, but the research of so many people, you know, we've talked about Carol Dweck and Maxie Baltzby and, sure. you know, and then, um, so, you know, some wonderful recent academic studies were, you know, they put people in labs and look at how they learn from failure or don't learn from failure, right? So there's, it's science-backed. And I do believe also that word science helps us say, I mean, what does that mean? That just means there's knowledge behind it. So when you yeah. and I are recommending that people, you know, practice self-awareness, there's science behind that. That's just not just our opinion. Yeah, fair, fair. And it has received the book uh, Advanced Praise from other uh, friends of mine, friends of the show, Dan Pink, Angela Duckworth, Adam Grant, for example. Um, I just want to say congratulations. I think the the work, today's episode for sure, and the work for those that are excited to uh, learn a little bit more about failure is incredibly helpful. I love the reconciliation or the, the, the attempt at reconciling the things that we do wrong and our ability to manage our emotions. To me, that's, that is... We're not, it's not like we're not going to make mistakes. It's how that we, how can we manage our self-talk in such a way that we're not willing to, or we're not scared rather to get back up and go be a human again tomorrow. So thank you very, very much for being on the show. Um, My pleasure. We've been directing people to the book. Where, is there anywhere else in your research there, Dr. Amy, or where would you point us <laughs> besides the book if they, if folks want to learn more? Well, they can go to amycedmondson.com and see other, you know, access to other papers and, and resources. Um, and of course, the Harvard Business School, I've got a faculty website there that has more detail on all the papers if you really want to get nerdy about it. Mm. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being on the show. Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Until next time, from Dr. Amy Edmondson and myself, we bid you adieu. Appreciate you listening. 
All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing the show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. Together.